This B-Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K-12 curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable, real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. Want to bring IXL to your school? Learn more at IXL.com B-E. That's IXL.com B-E. How do we give them an experience to remember something that they look forward to and run to, not something that they just have to be a part of? You know, one thing we have going for us in education is state law requires they show up. If it didn't, would they? And I can tell you, working with so many districts, the answer would be absolutely yes. They would run to it. Doesn't mean every day is going to be this miraculous, awe-inspiring experience. We're not naive there. But educators are some of the greatest people on the planet who work so ridiculously hard to recognize the needs and the strengths of kids are different. And that's just the heart of teaching. Welcome back to the podcast, Big Ideas in Small Windows. I can't wait to dive into this one with you. I got to meet our latest guest at a national ed tech conference called Fetzi in Orlando this year. He had a posse hanging around him, and I sat down and listened in. I could tell right away why. He's very engaging and approachable, and I knew because of that I had to have him on my podcast. Tom Murray is an author of numerous best-selling ASD books, serves as Director of Innovation for Future Ready Schools, has won multiple distinguished awards, including 20 to Watch, National Global EdTech Leader of the Year, Education Policy Person of the Year, and even testified before Congress. You won't want to put his book, Personal and Authentic, down. It's filled with engaging stories and tips. So let's jump right in. Welcome back to Big Ideas and Small Windows. I'm here with Tom Murray. It's such a pleasure to be with one of the uh, behemoths of uh, the writing and speaking world, and I have so much to ask and talk to him about. So I want to begin, Tom, by uh, first of all, welcoming you. Hey, Mike. Thanks for having me. Appreciate you having me here. Great to have you here, Tom. And I have to start with the obvious, Future Ready Schools. Uh, This initiative is bold and it's broad. I love how the theme highlights every child, regardless of their zip code, and then lists what all kids deserve. Can you speak on a few of these and how Future Ready might help equalize the playing field? Yeah, absolutely. So first, thank you so much for recognizing that, for acknowledging that. You know, having been with Future Ready since day one, it's something I'm super proud of. And I know when my time comes to eventually look back at the work, it's something that I will really just be proud of having been a part of. You know, Future Ready launched under President Obama at the White House with 100 superintendents. And we took it over that day because we're bipartisan, nonprofit. We wanted to be able to do the exact same work in red states and in blue states. And the zip code piece really hit home because we are an equity focused organization. We recognize that 
in many areas. And I'll be honest, the area where I grew up as a child, there was a lot of opportunity for me. There was a lot of access. I had what I needed. And that's kind of that, that privilege I operated under. Right. But I also recognized that now I do, I am not sure I did when I was growing up that many children didn't have the access that I have. And today we've made leaps and bounds with the pandemic and things like technology and access, but let's be real. There's, there's a variety of equity disparities that are very real from funding. And we could go on and on about all those pieces. So Future Ready really works to help level the playing field. We work alongside school and district leadership. The work that we do to support, we work with state departments all across the board. We have frameworks and tools and resources. We also, as a nonprofit, we raise a lot of money each year to do what we do for free for school districts. We've had a couple things that are going deeper in nature that are cohorts and ongoing and that we've had, uh, you know, small amounts of money there for really to often to cover food or expenses or live events. Um, but when we talk about the work that we do, going back to your original question, to level the playing field so that zip codes aren't predictors of ultimate success. So we want to level that field for access, for opportunity. We're not here to tell people what to teach or even how to teach it, but to really transform systems that are relevant, that are modern, that are needed by today's learners and to be able to support that process. So lots of tools, lots of resources to be able to support it. At the end of the day, we are a kid-focused organization. I love it. You made me think about this coming at it from two different directions. The first is we've got all these great resources to offer you and your school systems. The other one is a little less obvious, but I think at least as powerful. And that is these sort of institutional biases, microaggressions, things that none of us intend to do, but could be things that are actually harming kids. And when you start to bring resources and awareness to people, isn't it like a, a double win that we're also then becoming much more aware, oh, maybe we do need to be thoughtful about this. Absolutely. And I think, you know, a lot of the trainings and, th and stuff that we do, just like everybody else in the world, we're doing a lot virtually now. We'll go back to in-person when it's certainly safe for everybody to do it. But part of it is to really fo is focused on mindsets, you know, how we see the world, looking at it and recognizing as a leader, um, you know, the way you see the world is unique and the way you see the world is different than every child that enters your building. And it's not that one's better, they're just different. And really noticing differences and recognizing and then acting on differences is the foundation of equity. And so um, in taking a look at that, yeah, there's a lot of things that we have to examine. There's a lot of things that we have to look in the mirror. There's also a lot of great resources and tools. So we have a lot of folks that work alongside us in the work to support school and district leaders in the stuff that we do. You know, this reminds me of when I was a kid and getting ready for college and hearing all about how the SAT was biased towards my, my group. And I'm thinking to myself, well, it didn't help me, <laughs> but, but this is the kind of thing that reverses that. These are the kind of resources that start to begin that incredible shift. And that to me is the most empowering component of it. You know, we're doing that leveling. Yeah, we're one of the few organizations, the home organization's All for Ed. It used formerly the Alliance for Excellent Education, but All for Ed. And we're one of the few organizations out there that literally works from the classroom to Congress. So on my side with Future Ready, I'm training superintendents, principals, working alongside those folks uh, day in and day out. But we have a policy side that works along the, alongside the Senate, the Congress, uh, state level policies where we're really working towards equitable policies. So proud to be one of the few organizations that really can say they work from the school building to Congress. And, um, and we're really proud of that.
That's amazing. Matter of fact, you testified in front of Congress. I think it was in 2014. Did I get that correct? Yeah, it feels feels, uh, feels like a lifetime ago. And all, all <laughs> honesty, the funny part was I had just left the school district that I was in. I had just left uh, being a district office. I just got recruited coming to DC. And when they recruited me, I said, hey, like, I'm not your federal policy kind of guy. Like, I, <laughs> I understand what I need to know to run a school building to lead in a district, but I'm not the guy that wants to sit back and just write policy. Like, that stuff doesn't excite me. It just doesn't. And they said, well, no, don't worry. We'll break you in. And literally like four weeks later, I'm sitting in front of Congress testifying. And so <laughs> I joke like being like, thanks for throwing me to the wolves. Right. But it was at a time where Home Depot got breached and Target got breached and Congress started to ask a really good question. Here's these billion dollar companies that spend millions and millions of dollars on security and privacy. And they screwed it up. Like what about the average school district that has a couple of people, if that, managing highly sensitive data and also budgets that don't look like Home Depot and Target, looking at security and privacy, but also the use of data and the effective use and why districts leverage data. The, you know, the average congressional member does not understand that. And, and I don't say that to, to criticize them. It's just they're not in the educational realm. And so testifying in front of them was helping to educate them a little bit on why districts use data, but simultaneously how they need to keep it safe. You were like given the practical position that they don't always get to hear, which had to be a benefit. That was one of my questions. I wondered, do you feel like you came out of that? And what are we, eight years past? Yeah, the funny, the funny part was I came out of that, like being used to like school board meetings and administrative type uh -huh. stuff. But there's certainly this like there's these lights in front of you. And when it goes red, you're supposed to stop talking. But I was like, oh, heck, I've been here for four weeks. I can play the innocent <laughs> card. I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep rolling. Right. And so I uh, got some really fun remarks from folks. They could see the educator side of me come out. Right. The, the side of just being there for kids and, and supporting educators and doing what we're doing. And it led to a lot of work with the Senate, the Congress in a bipartisan way around things like student data privacy to support that. But it's interesting because I think I was really, really jaded before I went to Washington, D.C., thinking about the Senate and Congress. And what I found is, yes, like obviously what you see in the news, part of that's there. The vast majority of those folks, especially on the, on the House side, are hardworking people that are trying to represent their communities and seeking to understand in a lot of cases. Now, that's not whatever shows up on the news, but right. I had a lot of great conversations with both sides of the aisle as they really tried to understand you know, longitudinal data and how a district would use it and what that would look like. And I think sometimes it's easy to throw stones at those folks and be like, oh, I would never do that. But they're entrusted with literally everything, the military, our economy, like all facets of everything. And then sometimes we're like, well, how do they not know about district data? Well, it's just not their world, right? And so both sides of the aisle, credit to them. It's like that, that area around privacy and still to this day, especially like think about that conversation with remote learning and all those pieces. That's an area, it doesn't matter if you're red or you're blue, like that's important. And it really comes down to trust and protecting our kids and all those pieces there as well. So even these years later, it's still something I'm highly passionate about because there's no room for error. Yeah. And I think what you described is, you know, you came across as an educator, but you also came across as a, a person. And yep. I can say that personally, I got to meet you at FETC 2022 at yep. the Meet the Author event. And you were like pleasant and approachable. And I noticed a whole fan club around you. And I'm like, there's something going on over here. <laughs> and I thank you for making me feel so comfortable too. You seem so authentic and interested in, in people. And I just want to give a shout out about that. Uh, because... That means a lot, Mike. You know, for me, it's, it's yes, I get to do a lot of that kind of stuff. And 
for me, it's how do I practice what I preach? I can't talk about being personal and authentic in my latest book and then be the unapproachable person that forgets where they came from, right? For me, I'm still that fourth grade teacher at heart, standing in front of kids, crying on the last day of school because I'm going to miss my, my, my 25 children that I just got to know for the past year. And for me, that, that humility and that vulnerability is really important. And I do get the opportunity to do a lot of things that I'm really proud of, but I will say, you know, it really comes down to me again from a leadership end. I think keys to leadership are humility and vulnerability. I will never stand on a stage and tell people how well I did something ever. And I get some pretty big stages sometimes, but I will never tell them how well I did something. I'll tell them I screwed it up and I'll tell them how <laughs> my mindset was off and how I was the problem and I was the issue and I was the negative guy in the faculty room. Like I'll share that because I think people can relate to vulnerability, but it's easy to stand on a stage and say anything that you want. It really, really is. But what happens is I think it's natural to say, well, if I had a principal like that, I could do that too. If we had a superintendent like that, we would easily do that. If my board would do that, of course I could do that. But the moment we keep it real, whether it's at a book signing or whether it's at on a stage, whether it's side by side, sitting in a lunch with an educator, it lets people's guards down a little bit and people can just be real saying, yeah, you know, that's been me at times too. And I've just found that really works well with people because you're just, you're keeping it real. Yeah, it really came through and, and it continues to. So I'm going to jump to that book because, because I, of course, had some thoughts on this. The, the title of your book, Personal and Authentic, it just, that title bleeds through the whole text and is the focus. I love the description. Here's a description I, I found. All inspiring experience grounded in relationships and learner-centered by design. What's interesting is, you know, the future ready stuff and testifying about data in Congress. So aren't you the data guy? But in this case, you tell two really amazing stories at the beginning in your own personal experience. Is it possible to just maybe summarize one of those and why you included one or both in your book? Yeah. So it's, um, you know, it's interesting because the, my, my book before that was Learning Transformed for ASCD. I wrote that with Eric Scheninger and they're, they're two very different books. You know, that first one's very research to practice, very evidence-based heavy, probably over a hundred research studies that are not like, like some parts of them summarized in terms of why we would change things where this book was not that at all. There was times I, I wrote 98% of personal and authentic between four and, and 7.30 in the morning. It was the only time of day that I could actually write, not take away from my work day and not take away from my family. And I will tell you, there was times I was sitting in in Starbucks writing. And part of it was not that I need my $5 coffee. It was like, I need to get shower, get up and get out of the house, or I'm not doing anything else at 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. And I would go there and there was times that I could remember just tears streaming down my face as I wrote. And I, I still remember this one time, a lady, a worker there came over and she's like, are you all right, man? I'm just checking on you. And I'm like, yep, just telling an education story, right? And the reason I share that and just share the behind the scenes there is because in, in sharing personal and authentic, I really wanted to put my heart out there, be vulnerable, keep it real, but also just to show the human side of the work for educators, right? And so, you know, it, it got released two and a half to three months before the pandemic. And so you want to talk about a shift and a lot of people think they'll ask like, wow, how did you write that in the pandemic so quickly to keep it so relevant? Because the things I talk about around self-care and failing forward and fear and all those pieces like were very, very relevant in the last couple of years. And not that I had some magic wand, I just really tried to bring it back to what matters most. And that's people, you know, under No Child Left Behind, we went so far to like data and data teams and data meetings and data, data, data. We talked about it, I testified on it, right? And it's important <laughs> stuff. It is. It's a piece to the puzzle, but it's not the whole puzzle. And one of the pieces that I wrote in Personal and Authentic on that is like, you know, the difference between making a judgment and having empathy is understanding the story. And so I leverage a variety of stories of my own experience that 
it doesn't have to be me writing. Yes, I shared that story. But if you're an educator, you can sit back and say, yeah, I've lived through that too. I know that feeling. So part of it, I, I've learned that to relate to people, I think it's keeping it real, being vulnerable, but to tap emotion, it's story that really does that. When you look at data and you, you share research, I'm not sure I've ever seen anybody ever tear up over the latest research study, right? And not that it's about getting them to tear up, it's about connecting with people. And story is a way to do that. And so when I'm speaking or whether I'm writing, I like to use story because sometimes I'll tell it with my dad hat on and any parent reading that book or heck, if there's anybody that cares about a kid reading that book, they can relate to those stories. So one of the stories that I'll share, I, my opening chapter, I'm not going to share those two stories. It's really a challenge for me to share without getting emotional, to be honest with Understood. it. Um, but one of the stories early on that I share is about my own daughter. And I get emotional telling this one as well, but I'll give you the very quick version. We get so caught up in, in education on everything like test scores and, and all on data and all those pieces. And, you know, when I, when I speak to it, what I'll often do is I'll put data on the screen and I'll say, you know, pre-COVID in the past 14 months, this child's been absent 35 times in the past 14 months. She's been tardy 20 times. And I'll ask people, and I've asked rooms of literally thousands of people and gone around and said, like, give me some, give me some judgments that people might make, you know, kids, lazy parents don't care. doesn't value education. Doesn't want to show up they're up all night playing video games. Maybe they're working. Maybe there's pregnant. Maybe there's bullying, blah, blah, blah. All the things that maybe we've seen glimpses of. Right. And then I share, well, like, let me tell you part of the story. That's my daughter. And the room goes silent. And then I share the story behind why I share part of her medical journey. I share when we almost lost her multiple times. And then I share, well, what if I told you in every one of those 35 absences, she was two hours from home undergoing food allergy therapy as the first child in the Northeast to do it for sesame seeds. Right. And then I start to share, like, what if I told you that, yeah, we've almost lost her multiple times. That little girl drove 10,000 miles. She spent 180 hours in the car. And every single one of those times she would say, mommy or daddy, I really wish I could be in school today. And now that little girl who we've almost lost multiple times for cross-contamination levels of sesame, breads, crackers, pretzels. By the way, you wonder why all of a sudden we were the parents being like, hey, classroom party, can we check the food? Because she had about a 30-minute window before it could be all over related to sesame seeds, pretzels, about half of them, right? Wow. And so I share all that because of that journey in those 14 months, those 35 absences, those 20 tardies. That journey, she now eats the equivalent of 2,000 seeds of sesame every single day in her daily dose to keep her safe. She can now free eat it. And so I share that because the difference between making a judgment and having empathy, I'll go back to it's understanding the story. And so part of my telling that, I call it the hidden stories within, is then really reflecting on like every child that walks into our classroom has stories on their hearts. Every teacher across the hall, every principal has stories on their hearts and hidden doesn't necessarily be bad. It can certainly be a good thing as well, right? Like it can be, Hey, this coming weekend, I'm going away with my spouse for the first time in two years, kid free, super excited and really excited about it impacting my day, but nobody else here knows. But if I'm real, it can also be the struggles, the struggles on our heart. When we will go to school that day that nobody else around knows, but yet it impacts our lens. And, and we as adults can relate to that, but we have the humility to step back and recognize that's our kids too. And sometimes I think it's easy to look at scenarios like that and be like, well, they're hidden stories, Tom. Like, how would we ever know? It's not our fault for not knowing. And I think that's a natural tendency to things that we've probably missed in the past. My question becomes, how do we create an environment of trust or environment where people feel like if they want to, they can share? And I think educators are some of the very best at that. But do we also make a conscious effort to understand the stories of our people? I think this year, one of my daughter's sixth grade language arts teacher, shout out to Mrs. DeLuca, one of the things she did earlier this year that I thought was amazing was the one of the first writing prompts this year was, if you really knew me, you would know that dot, dot, dot. 
my daughter showed me her final copy and in there was part of her medical journey. Mm-hmm. I sobbed reading it, mm-hmm. but she had the opportunity. She wasn't forced. She had the opportunity to share just a little glimpse of who she was to her daughter's teacher very early on in the year, simply because she gave them an opportunity to do so. And so when we talk about that kind of stuff. It's those types of examples that I try and bring out in personal and authentic to keep it real, to recognize the emotion in the work, but also to give some practical ideas. Last thing I'll mention related to that, there's over a hundred voices amplified in personal and authentic that are not mine. There's a forward by one of my good friends, Inky Johnson, black male, grew up in a very different environment than Tom Murray did. This section on equity, co-written by one of my best friends, Ken Shelton. It's got a different worldview than Tom Murray does. The section on cultural relevance written by a really good friend of mine, Dr. Rosa Perez Isaiah, um, who's got a very different story than Tom, right, than me. And so lots of uh, opportunity in the book to amplify voices of other people who see the world fundamentally different than I do. And different doesn't mean worse or or better. It's just different. And so to amplify the voices of lots of other people, to give lots of perspectives, and then also about a hundred different, what I call make it sticks, just really practical ideas to do something in a classroom or as a principal, that is a one or two sentence idea related to the area that we're writing about. So I tried to also not just push some thinking, but to be really practical in nature as as well. A lot. You've got the breaking down of, in, of barriers, uh, of walls, and at the same time, something that somebody can read and say, I can use this tomorrow. Uh, I love it. And you know what's amazing about what you said about the stories is there's research that shows that when we hear a story, we actually feel like we're living vicariously through it if it's, if it's well-presented, obviously. And yeah. that means so much because that's why teachers can be, can be good storytellers, like you said. And yeah. it allows us to mirror our same brain patterns as the person who's telling the story and like experiencing it with them. It's a, it's a powerful way to, to no wonder we remember that better than boring data. Yeah. How about <laughs> right? It? Yeah. How about yeah. So I don't know if you knew this, but we both hail from the Philadelphia area. You're from Bucks County. So that's, yes, I, I actually grew up in New York. So I'm a New York Giants fan, by the way. It's I was going, I was I'm going in that. the other direction. I knew you're going to go in that direction, by the way. <laughs> But I, I spent my career before working nationally in the Bucks, in the Bucks County area, about an hour north of Philadelphia. So yeah, I will tell you, being a, a diehard New York Giants fan at a, at a time when I was a principal that they were getting crushed by the Eagles a week in and week out, and then getting picked on by five-year-olds as they would walk into my building was really an interesting spot to be in. So uh, no, we had some good fun with it back in the day. I can imagine. And I moved to New Jersey and the part of New Jersey that's Metro New York. So I, I have had this, the exact opposite impact. I will tell you, I'm a huge Saquon Barkley fan uh, because yeah. I'm, I'm a Penn State alum. So uh, I hope he gets healthy and he's got amazing uh, skills if he yeah, does. Me too. Me too. And uh, well, I was going to ask if you're an Eagles fan, but I'm not going to attempt that. Then. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. Moving on. <laughs> so 20 to watch. These are those that have those individuals, those professionals who have the ability to inspire colleagues to explore and embrace innovative tech solutions and instructional strategies, contributing to high quality learning experience for all students. How has this recognition that you received, this distinguished recognition, helped you to get the word out about tech as a teaching and learning instrument? Yeah, I would say, first of all, and I appreciate the shout on that, you know, for me, it's never about any sort of an award or those kinds of things. 
Sure. I, I appreciate the shout. You appreciate the things sitting on the, on the stand over there in the office. But for me, it's about how do we impact people? How do we influence people? You know, I think going back to the ed tech side of things, one of the things I've been so passionate about way back in the day, a few friends of mine and I started ed tech chat. It was like the second or third education chat that was out there. And I don't have time to do it anymore, but it was really the, this notion of the impact of ed tech. And what's really fascinating is you, somebody that, that like myself, that's used social media for a long time the things that get glorified on social media, we really have to be careful of. And here's why I'm going with that, especially with all the devices and all the things that have been purchased. We've got to recognize that we can be 100% digital using devices 100% of the time with 100% apps and simultaneously 100% low level learning. And sometimes on social media, things get completely glorified. Like I'm 100% paperless, like as lovingly as I can. So what? Like, what if it's all low level? Like we celebrate sometimes the wrong stuff. And so part of my, my real push around ed tech, and sometimes a lot of times when I speak on the topic, I almost realize after like five or 10 minutes of passionately talking about kind of the, so what, why are we celebrating this? It almost comes across as I'm anti-ed tech and I'm not at all, like at all. I'm all about making sure that we spend every dollar that comes out of somebody's pocket well, because we can be one-to-one and simply have digital worksheet storage hubs. And if that's what we're doing, we're wasting money, right? And so one of the ways I really like to look at it related to, and part of the push has been, when I, when I first got to All for Ed, we did a research study with Dr. Linda Darling-Hammond and her team at Stanford University, really analyzing what does the effective use of ed tech look like? Because glorified all over the place is like, hey, I logged into a Google Doc. I, you know, I did all this. And like, it's such low level stuff. At the end of the day, we got to be really conscious of that. And so it really boils down to a couple of things. Number one, it's this notion of um, explore, design, create. You know, if we're looking at Webb's depth of knowledge, Bloom's taxonomy, it's those deeper levels, right? Those higher levels mm -hmm. versus what I would say is probably our most prevalent practice. And that's the digital drill and kill used to be on a worksheet. Now it's on a Chromebook. We're celebrating. We're doing something different. At the end of the day, uh, we're really not, right? Now, the pandemic changed some of that. And like, we had to be able to access stuff. So it's not bad that it was digital. We just can't assume it's high level because it's digital. Because we can be online all day and have really low level experiences if we're not careful of it, right? So that's one example. Another one's that's the right blend of teachers and technology. And that's something that we've always known. What's right for one kid, it's going to be different than another one. The third piece, and the one I often focus on when we look at something like ed tech, is taking a look at uh, interactive learning. And when I talk about that, the National Ed Tech Plan from, I believe it was 2016 or 2017, coined to the phrase, the digital use divide. We've been talking about the digital divide for over 20 years. The has and the has nots, obviously very pre prevalent in remote learning. Many of those gaps have been closed or almost fully closed. Now, yes, there's still equity gaps in those areas, but we've done a lot of work as schools with getting the access at schools. 99% of schools have the connectivity they need right now because of remote learning, many of our kids, most of our kids have devices when needed. Now, again, there's still some issues there, but the digital use divide is coined by the National Ag Tech Plan really contrasts active versus passive use. Passive being that consumption-based, I'm taking it in, I'm reading a static webpage, I'm watching a video. There's nothing inherently wrong with it. We will do it, but you have to recognize what it is. It's low level. But the flip side is that creation, the design, the simulations, the, the STEM, the coding, a lot of that kind of stuff, because it's deeper in nature. And so it's not that you can all be only on the active use side. It's making sure if we're spending a lot of time on the passive use side of things. We are investing a lot of time in low level learning and spending a lot more money. So we've got to be really conscious of that. And again, I'm a big fan of ed tech 
when we use it well. So as an admin, it's helping educators have the understanding of what are the types of things that we need to do so they can be deeper in nature. What are the things that we can do and we will do, but at the same time that are kind of lower in, in nature in terms of from a learning level, we got to be really conscious of that. Listening to you say that, it reinforces the idea that the teacher is still the person that can really truly challenge kids to learn and to be the best version of themselves. The technology is the tool that they may leverage to get them there, but it's not, it's going to be the teacher ultimately that, that brings it home. And recognize that, you know, one of the things, just share one thing really quickly as well. One of the other stories I share in personal and authentic, that's really in this area is I was one-to-one in my classroom 20 years ago, one-to-one Wow. Palm pilots. Remember those babies? Yes, I do. I had one. And we're one of the pilot, right. We were one of the pilot classrooms in my district. And of course I was one of those teachers that was just like, yeah, I'll try it. Let's do it. We'll have some fun with it. And so I share this story. It was a supervision conversation with my principal where he really called me out and said, you know, Tom, and for my end, like everything went great. I used technology the whole time. Every kid followed directions. Like my lesson plan was followed to a T like all those things were really well in place. But at the end of the day, and I had the relationship with my principal, so this is not a, you know, anti-admin story at all. It was a supervision conversation that I literally remember 20 years later, shows the impact of it. But he really pushed me on, I really think you planned the lesson because the technology could do something, not because it was the best way to learn something. And that was really eye-opening for me because he was right. I did something because the tech could, not because it was best from a learning end. And I never, ever forgot that. And so then being a tech director, you know, now working across the country on it, it's really that push of just because it can doesn't mean we should. And sometimes taking it and putting it away and having pencil and paper out might be the right thing to do. And that's okay. There's no shame in that. It's no shame in that at all. I'm going to mention, since you're humble, just to brag a little bit more about you, you also received the National Global Ed Tech Leader of the Year Award in 2018 and the Education Thought Leader of the Year in 2017. So I can imagine this helped you get your message out too. And I, I wanted to emphasize that, that I, I know you, I, having met you, that you're, you're humble. You're not doing this for the award or the prestige, but you can leverage that to get the word out in ways that can help kids learn better, I would assume. Yeah, I mean, I would hope, and at the end goal, that's certainly the day that the recognition, like I shared earlier, is always always kind, and I certainly appreciate people or organizations or places going out of their way, and it's meaningful on that end, you know, give something to hang on the wall, but at the end of the day, it's not why you do it, because if you're chasing the next award, eventually you're going to run out and fall flat on your face, mm-hmm. so for me, it's how do, you, how do you get the message out, how do you use any platform that you have, and maybe your platform is just your building, and that's a huge platform, because that can impact every kid in your building. Mm-hmm. So maybe it's speaking up at a faculty meeting, maybe it's speaking up in the lunchroom, you know, or the faculty room where something needs to be said, Hey, you know what? I actually see that differently. And using your voice for that doesn't have to be a big stage to have an impact. It doesn't have to be in a magazine to have an impact for me. It's kind of where I started some of those pieces and having some courage to have some courageous conversations about difficult topics or to buck trends sometimes with maybe some of my colleagues and what they were feeling or thinking, of course, in a respectful way. But I encourage folks to use their voice, especially to make sure you're doing the right work, right? It's easy for me to look in the mirror and get so uh, consumed with me, I, and my. Sometimes it's hard to step back, point the finger back at myself and say, am I saying, is it we, our, and they, or me, I, and my, like, where am I focused here, right? And so, um, you know, I think, I think it's important for whatever platform that we have to use our impact. And maybe you're somebody listening to this whose platform is a second grade classroom with 27 kids, well then use that platform 
to connect with those kids, change the lives of those kids, connect with those families, support those families. That's what impact is all about. And so I encourage folks that are listening to use your expertise, use your impact, have those courageous conversations where needed, and make sure that when we go to bed at night, we can put our pillow on it knowing we fought the good fight to do the right work. Great message. That's what it's all about. That's what it's all about. You also write a lot and you speak a lot of your books. You've written or contributed to six. And what would you say is your favorite and, and maybe why? If you had to pick yeah, one. So that's that's a, it's a tough question. I hope none of my co-authors hear, hear my response. All right, we're going to turn it off for them. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I would say for me, um, my last two books were most meaningful, Learning Transformed and Personal and Authentic, and not because of the little bestseller sticker next to them, but for Learning Transformed uh, with Eric Scheninger that I wrote was really that systems change, that high level. There was a state leader, a state level, a state superintendent that used it as the roadmap for their state to kind of push some of that forward. I was really pretty proud of that. Saying that, I will say though, I think for me, it's personal and authentic because it was my first single book. And I also tell stories that include my own children and the impact of their teachers. And part of doing so was for me to be able to leave a legacy for my kids where they're in it. Now, a little podcast secret from an author end is my kids' names are in every one of my books. Now they're pretend oh, cool. teachers, they're pretend it's kind of that little Easter egg type thing. Yeah, Sometimes yeah. it's like a pretend second grade teacher or whatever it might be. So part of any time from an author and something's published, part of what I'll do is they'll crawl up in my lap and they've got to find their names. So they're super <laughs> excited about that. But it was the first time I really used them as who they were and not as just kind of fake people. I shared my daughter's story earlier in the podcast as an example, but um, I think part of it is that's why it's most meaningful. Yeah. And, you know, you talked about your daughter earlier and, and, you know, so you have two children, I believe yep. what knowing them, what innovative practices do you hope they can or are benefiting from in school? Yeah. Well, first of all, shout out to the school district where I live in Pennsylvania, Parkland school district, great district. Their teachers have been absolutely amazing. I stood and taught there, by the way. Oh, did you really? Yeah. What great school. How, how yeah. funny is that? Yeah. Um, so, but amazing people there and they're working super hard, doing great things. And so shout out to their teachers who put them first as people, right. And then recognize to push their minds as well and push them hard. And so I want to give them all a shout out. You know, I think what hits me the most being a dad and um, my, when, pay, when my daughter's the oldest of the two, and when she was born, I was a principal and it, for me, fundamentally changed how I looked at things like disciplining a child. When a child would come down to my office, how do I make sure that I'm talking to every child like somebody, I would want somebody to talk to my daughter or to my son. And so it gave me a new lens um, in which to see the world. It gave me a lens to say, like, am I treating them with the same respect that I'd want from my own child? And I hope to say that I've always done that. It just changed my lens a bit because I could see it as a dad. But I would say what really has impacted me the most there is my daughter and my son, which love, live under the same household, have the same mom, are completely different children. <laughs> Like I joke, my daughter at, in sixth grade right now, I'm like, I'm done. She's good. She can go off in the world. She's got this. She comes home. She's like, dad, do you mind if I go read for a little bit? Like that's her, right? I'm like, uh, yeah, go ahead. Do that. Like read three books last week. Like that's her. My other guy, he's, <laughs> he's all boy. He's just chaos on wheels would lose <laughs> his head if, if it wasn't attached to his body, right? Like we joke, he's either going to be a, a CEO of his own company or he's going to be in jail. There's no in between, right? That's my little guy. Now, as sweet as he is, as loving as he is, the reason I share all that, they are totally different kids. Yes, they have, they have the exact same parent structure, live in the same household, have access to the exact same resources, and they are totally different learners. 
My daughter can sit in any classroom, be totally compliant, do anything she's asked, sit there quietly, redo it. She's great with that. You ask my son to do the exact same thing and just to sit there and read quietly and just sit there. He's going to be like climbing off the ceiling by the time he's done, right? They're just very mm -hmm. different kids. And so I share that. Of course, I love them the same, both amazing kids. They're very different. So if two kids coming from the exact same household are completely different, how can we meet the needs of 24, 30 kids coming from different households in the same classroom? They're going to be even more all over the map. And so how do we make it more personal? How do we make it more authentic? How do we give them an experience to remember something that they look forward to and run to, not something that they just have to be a part of? You know, one thing we have going for us in education is state law requires they show up. If it didn't, would they? And I can tell you, working with so many districts, the answer would be absolutely yes. They would run to it. Doesn't mean every day is going to be this miraculous, awe-inspiring experience. We're not naive there. But educators are some of the greatest people on the planet who work so ridiculously hard to recognize the needs and the strengths of kids are different. And that's just the heart of teaching. Yeah, I think I really felt that and, and got to, I wrote about this actually, uh, seeing teachers being missed by kids and kids missing being yeah. in the aura and the environment of school and saying, wow, this is actually something they didn't take it for granted, but I think we all realized they need to be in person because yeah. that's what learning and teaching is all about. And the experience of having kids with us, my, my school, where we are, because of some of the changes in the recent mask mandates and that kind of thing, it was really interesting to hear my own kids reflect on it because, you know, my son, all he's ever known, he was in kindergarten when this all started to go down, you know, it was interesting because what they shared was what they were most excited when the mask mandate was lifted just recently they were excited to see the other kids' faces because they really hadn't. And it's like, it's it's sad on one hand, right? When yeah. you think and you process that, it wasn't like, I can't wait for the like, all goes away just so I can hop online and do one more digital lesson. It was the human side that they talked <laughs> mm -hmm. about with those kinds of things. And so, yeah, I, I'm a fan of online stuff. I think there's absolutely a place for it, but it's really hard to, to replace the human connection, the side-by-side -side interactions and those pieces. And I know our kids missed a lot of that. Jives right with your latest book. Wow. So you're married to a school counselor and you must hear about some pretty concerning or serious or sad uh, social emotional challenges. I know she can't divulge specifics, but sure. Right. You hear some of the, well, I just, you won't believe what I found out today or, or that sort of thing. And, you know, kids are dealing with trauma more. That's just the reality. How can innovation help them or is it too late? Yeah. You know, it's, so, so you're hitting on it. It's like kind of, do we have another hour to, you know, in this conversation? <laughs> it goes back to the human side of the work. And what I would say is there's a lot of great programs and types of things out there. You know, Harmony Inspire is just one example of free content, free resources that has big uh, funders behind it that recognize, um, and there's lots of others out there. They're just one off the top of my head that recognize, hey, the human side of the work, the full child, the whole child matters. And so I would encourage folks to leverage some tools, make time for it. You know, I think in some places it was looked at as kind of the nice to have the add on quick little lesson when we can fit it in or get to it. But there's some places, especially through the pandemic and moving forward are recognizing this is core to what we do. This shouldn't be some add on because at the end of the day, like, to, to really push a kid's mind, we have to find a way to touch the heart. And if the heart's not whole, there's far more things that we've got to make sure that we're focused on. And when we look at it, like going back to like Maslow 101, right? That hierarchy of needs. If that child doesn't have the food that they need, if they don't have the shelter that they need, if they don't have the access to the need, 
the end of the day, do they really care about calculus? No, they're still in that survival mode. And so making sure that we connect from the whole child aspect, recognizing uh, one of the things I wrote in Personal and Authentic is, you know, if we care more about a child's academic accolades than we do about his or her heart, we've totally lost our way because mm-hmm. we're the people business. And so we've got to focus on our people first. And for any admin listening, that's also including our teachers and their own self-care and own wellness and mental health related to all of that. That reminds me of that saying, I don't teach science to kids. Yeah, I teach kids about science, yeah. right? Yeah. It's got to come first. It's, it's all yeah. about that, that relationship piece. Yeah, that's one of, the, one of the things I wrote in Personal and Authentic, and I think I tried to go through almost every subject area, is you don't teach English. You teach kids English. You don't teach science. You teach kids science. You know, it's in every area. Because I think it's easy to get out of whack with that and really what our purpose is and our why of the work. Yeah. The other thing you get to say is I get to teach kids. I don't have to teach kids. Right. Mm-hmm. Isn't there an ideology and a lens that yep. yeah, definitely shifts? Well, this has been a wide ranging and great informative interview. I like to try to do it that way to capture as much as I can in the, in the 30 minutes. Is there anything I didn't ask you that you wished I had or something you just would like to add? Yeah. I just like to add at the end first, thank you for those folks that are listening and invested the time, but I would say, you know, for anybody that's there working with kids, no matter what your role is, make sure to take care about you. Educators are some of the most giving people on the planet and they give all day and give all day and go home. And many of them give at night and they give at night and they take care of people at night and take care of people at night and they get up the next day and they do it all again. You know, self-care is not selfish. It's easy to talk about in a quick sign sound bite. I get it. But because of the servant hearts that educators have, they often run over themselves in the process. And let's call it like it is for the past two years, you've been teaching or leading or whatever your role has been, you know, through trauma. And so we've got to make sure that we take care of ourselves in this process. And it's not just about the few time of year break that we deserve and we get, it's about making sure we're making conscious choices to prioritize our families, prioritize our own children, prioritize those we love. And when we think about those pieces, we've got to make sure that we take care of ourselves. And I'm not just talking about summer break. That's so, so important. I tell my teachers all the time, would you be this hard on a friend? And they always well say said. no. Yeah, well said. Well, where can people find you? Awesome. Well, my website's thomascmurray.com. You can find all the links there on Twitter, uh, Thomas C. Murray, and on YouTube there as well. And on Instagram and Facebook, it's Thomas C. Murray EDU. And I'll make sure I link to that in the show notes. Mr. Murray, Tom Murray, thanks so much, my friend. It's been a great 35 or so minutes. And I really enjoyed just learning even more about you. I I got so much out of this that I can't wait to share with my audience. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Mike. Appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much for listening to Big Ideas and Small Windows with Tom Murray. And I can't wait for next week's episode when we get to hear from another best-selling author, this one all about grit and resilience just the thing we need to hear about now coming out of the challenges of the past couple years. Stay tuned for next week's edition. Do you want to save time on prep work, increase student achievement for all of your students, reliably meet tier one standards? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com B to learn how IXL's research-proven teaching and learning platform can help you achieve these goals. That's IXL.com slash B-E.